Welcome to the Final Word, presenting the Guardian Ashes Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins here with Jeff Lemon at Adelaide Oval. The day after a test match in Australia is won by 120 runs. They go 2-0 up in the Ashes series, but England have done pretty well in the last couple of days to vaguely fight themselves back into the scrap. Yeah, and before we start, a big thanks to Earthboy for our intro track. That is Stories off the album Smokey's Haunt. Go and check it out. As for England, kind of a couple of test matches back-to-back where they were in it for a while, mm. but a while doesn't really cut it in test cricket. You can't afford to have two good days and expect that you're going to win a test match. But there'll be a little bit of hope and encouragement. At least they were able to run through the Australians in their second innings and bowl them out for 138. At least they got Jimmy Anderson a five-wicket haul. You know, just that little bit of encouragement, although the way they went down on the fifth day was pretty limp in the end. Yeah, it feels a bit different to four years ago, that whitewash, that famous one. Whitewash, uh, where after two test matches, England were decimated. There were crisis talks. They were absolutely petrified of Mitchell Johnson. Here, there, there was a bit of stoicism in that second innings with the bat. And as you said, the skill James Anderson and Chris Wokes uh, showed, especially under lights, uh, was something they can certainly draw on when they go to Perth in a couple of weeks. Also taking something out of this match into Perth will be Sean Marsh. His 100 was the difference between the sides. Man of the match for that. Um, and a very good chance he might have his brother playing alongside him back in the team for Perth. Double marsh trouble. And who would have thought that that could ever happen again? Together at last again. Look, Jeff, we were going to deep dive uh, on this test match and and we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the podcast. But we've just had the the most wonderful discussion with Jason Gillespie, uh, who these days is the coach of Sussex, about to become the coach of Sussex. He's been involved in both Australia and England coaching after his illustrious test career. And and we we thought that um, you may want to hear in great detail from, from the great Australian fast bowler rather than us to jibbering on for the next half an hour or so, at least in the first instance anyway. Yeah, uh, Guardian columnist, of course, a really interesting thinker on the game and just someone who goes about his business very differently to most in the world of cricket. So let's throw to Jason Gillespie. This is the final word presenting the Guardian Ashes Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we have got Jason Gillespie with us here, decked out in your whites. So I, I, <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting to see you uh, playing a game at Adelaide Oval, but, but here you are. What's the story? Yeah, uh, thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jeff. We, we're um, playing a chairman's eleven game. The chairman of the SACAP, Andrew Sinclair, put an ensemble of some former South Australian players playing a. Um, an opposition. I'm not 100 percent sure who our opposition is, <laughs> if I'm perfectly honest. Um, but yeah, we're we're on the actual test surface that was just used right. uh, in the Adelaide Test match. So yeah, it's 30 overs a side. We're uh, going along very well after five overs. Cosgrove and Sinclair. We're, we're on 10 after, but in the, I think we're in about the sixth over. So we're, we're motoring along. <laughs> we were observing during the Test match that you could play on this track on about day eight. Uh, it looked that good. Uh, so it must be not a, not a bad not a bad chance when you get the ball to cause a bit of grief. Yeah, I don't know how much I'm going to be giving. Um, I haven't bowled for a while, and uh, and I haven't had a warm-up or anything. I only just arrived, really. So am I looking forward to it? I'm not looking forward to the aftermath when, <laughs> when you haven't bowled for a while and the soreness kicks in later tonight and when I'm driving home. It is a bizarre thing to do with your body when you look at the sort of shapes you have to contort yourself into, <laughs> trying to come back into that after a, a layoff. Oh, absolutely. I mean... It, it, bloody hurt when I played <laughs> when I was bowling all the time so I can assure you it uh yeah it, it doesn't get easier 
Um, that's for sure. 42 years of age now. We, we wanted to uh, have a chat to you about fast bowling mm. off the top, Jason. Yeah. You know these both systems, Australian system and English system, very well, having coached in both for, for a long period of time. The, the main, one of the main themes of the series so far is that Australia have got fast bowlers and, mm. and England don't. There's some you know, sort of theories that do the rounds about that, but keen to get your thoughts on why you think that Australia have three guys who bowl legitimately you know, 92 mile and above after, after what Jason, uh, Josh Hazelwood rather did yep. yesterday versus England that have never really been able to, to get to those peaks so far in the, in the series. Yeah, I mean, Adam, the short answer is I don't know. Both systems, I mean, I, I think in county cricket, there's a lot of, just with the conditions and because and there's more counties, there's, mm. there's a lot, lot more medium paces. Uh, and I think that's just the, the, the way it is. There are some fast bowlers. You know, Mark Wood consistently bowls 90 mile an hour plus. Uh, he's had some injury problems. Um, Chris Wokes can crank it up. Mm. You know, I've seen him bowl in the UK in test matches there. He, he nudges 90 mile an hour. So, so there are a few bowlers that, that get up there. I, I think as much as anything, I, I think from an Australian perspective, we're seeing something pretty special, aren't we? You can argue and, and argue strongly that Australia are, have picked their three fastest bowlers that are going around domestic cricket. England, uh, obviously Mark Wood has got pace. <coughs> Chris Wokes has got some pace. Uh, Liam Plunkett can bowl 90 mile an hour. Sure. But, you know, two of, the, two of those guys aren't playing for various reasons. And you can understand. I mean, they've got Jimmy Anderson's taken over 500 test wickets. You've got Stuart Broad well over 300 test wickets. So you can understand that. There was a time when, when Australia fielded sides that were bowling low to mid-80s or low to mid-130s. I think it's just a, a, a bit of a cycle. And uh, at the moment, we're very blessed to be watching three fast bowlers, you know, at just about the peak of their powers. I, I think the old fast bowler in me, I, I've loved these first two test matches <laughs> just to see these guys go about their work and... What I love about it is they complement each other well and, and there's a real point of difference with each of them. You've got the X factor of Pat Cummins. You've got relentless discipline of Joshy Hazelwood. And then you have the left-arm variety of Mitchell Stark who bowls a lot fuller than most seamers around the world. He can swing the new ball. He can reverse the old one. Uh, he's got a devastating Yorker, uh, skiddy bouncer, uh, a real point of difference. And um, then backed up by the GOAT, Nathan Lyon. It's, it's a pretty special time to be supporting you know, Australian cricket. And if you're a bit of a bowling tragic like myself, uh, it's very exciting to watch. Do you ever get a bit nervous watching Stark and Cummins going around, given they've both had such fragility in the past, a lot of injuries, and, and you, know, you battle through a lot of injury problems yourself? Do you have that worry that one of them might break down? No, I don't, actually. Um, injuries are going to happen. Um, you know, and I think the medical staff take as much steps, the players themselves take as much steps as possible to, to minimise um, the risks associated with getting injured, um, look, which hasn't necessarily changed. Um, you know, you know, we hear a lot about workload management and and things like this. So, you know, I think there are times where it's it's probably going too far the sports science way. But you, you could argue and argue very strongly that the sports science has got it absolutely spot on, uh, looking after these guys right now because they've, they've played two tests, they've bowled plenty of overs in each of them, and uh, and. As far as we know, they've pulled up well and they'll be ready to go for Perth. Looking at Pat Cummins, there is a quite neat comparison with you. You missed 50-odd of the first 90 tests that mm. were available to you after the booth due to yep. injury. Yep. Uh, and then you had that period of consistency where you were pretty much in the side for three years without injury at all, yep. leading up to 2005. Do you mm. sort of see Cummins as having reached that critical point now where he 
has passed the stage when he seems to be vulnerable and can go on and have a sort of a long and prosperous Australian yeah, career. Yeah, I really do, and and I've said it for a number of years. I said that you know once once Pat just gets conditioned and works out the difference between soreness and injury, I think is a is is absolute key. Um, and you only learn that by actually bowling. You don't learn it any other way. And you know, I knew I, after probably my mid twenties, I just stopped getting my back scanned. I just didn't want to. Didn't want to know it, just light up like a Christmas tree. So I'd, I just thought, I'm just going to leave that, let that one pass to the keeper, and I'll just keep playing. And I mean, it, it sounds very simple, but knowing your own body and knowing what you can and can't do, um, get get the advice from sports science, physio, the coaching staff, and whatever. But at the end of the day, it's your career, and you have to take that ownership of your body, of your training. Support staff are there to support you, but ultimately, you've got to you've got to work it out and. Fast bowling, bloody hard work. That, yeah. That's a brutal reality. It's hard work, and you're going to be sore. You just have to have to know that. But all you can do is put the steps in place. So, you know, eat right, the proper training, know when to to rest, know when you need to play, and just un- understand your body. Keep working on those little little minor little things that allow you to bowl well. You know, every, all bowlers have their little little checklists that they go through, and everyone's different. And uh, you know, if you just keep refining that. Like, so for me, for instance, my technically sometimes my front leg went across myself. You know, went towards you know fine leg for the right hander, and I, and I twisted a little bit. So my goal was always to stay nice and tall and minimise that as much as I can. There's a Pat Cummins bowl quite similar to me in, in a bowling action. Gets through the crease quickly. Little bit of twist, little bit of hip rotation, and that lateral side bend between front foot contact and ball release. So. Our actions were quite similar, so you know these are they're probably similar little keys that Pat Cummins will need to keep an eye on. You know he'll he'll pull up sore from time to time, just the nature of his action and and how fast he bowls. But I think the fact that he's you know he, he's been working hard at his at his strength and conditioning over over a number of years because he's been out injured, and just that natural cycle of building yourself up and filling out naturally combined with the training. It'll hold him in good stead. There's another comparison between you and Pat Cummins. It's the application you showed with the bat. I mean, we've seen him in the last couple of test matches play crucial roles mm. at number nine. Mitchell Stark's been tweeting at him saying, you can bat number eight if he wants and pass him in the order. And I mean, I know in your, towards the back end of your career, you became a, a really important cog in the, in, the, in the lower part of the order, obviously, culminating in that famous double hundred. But do you think that, for mine, that, that shows a broader leadership quality in Cummins? You led your state briefly, albeit towards the back end. Do you think Cummins has got those kind of leadership qualities that could have him in the conversation to one day um, be considered for a true legitimate leadership role in this Australian side on, on paper as well uh, as on the field? Look, I think a, a leader, you know, without having a letter next to his name, I, you know, I think as a general rule, you, it, it's very hard for fast bowlers to be to be a captain, for instance. Um, and, that, and that's for a number of reasons, but mainly bowlers do spend time out of the team, you know, more likely than any than mm. batsmen. Uh, that's just, just the way it is. And they've got a lot to think about when they're out in the middle, they've got their bowling. So, yeah, I, I just, I think he'll certainly have a leadership role, but not necessarily with a letter next to his name. You mentioned his batting. I mean, gee whiz, he's, he, he's got a very good sound base, good sound defence. He's actually got some shots. I didn't have any shots. I had to tuck off the hip at a cover drive. That's all I had. Um, mate, he, he, he can play. Make no bones about that. You know, lock him in for, you know, a, a couple of test hundreds, I reckon. he's. I think he can definitely do that. And batting eight, absolutely no issue. He, he can mm. do that. You know, I think he could even... 
potentially bat seven. If they needed to go that genuine five bowling options on a really flat wicket, and they need an extra bowling option. I know um, Andy Bickle did it on a West Indies tour. Mm-hmm. We went with uh, four quicks and Stuart McGill. Uh, this was in the early 2000s, and we were in Barbados, and Steve Ward trusted him to bat at seven. Adam Gilchrist just moved up to six, and, and that, that was fine, and he, I think he got... 60 or something so what a luxury having the, oh we'll just put Gilchrist up to 6 that'll, yeah. that'll be fine yeah. <laughs> if, if only every team was so lucky slightly different to pumping T-Pain up to number 6 just, just um, the slightly right. different yeah. Yeah. outstanding as he was here on he was good he was good not sure if he's uh, entirely ready for the promotion yet <laughs> but um, there, there was there was an Ashes game where I think setting a declaration you you had licence to have a swing and you, you smashed a, a couple over the fence and you know actually got to get going it was for, in Perth I remember did, how was the feeling of liberation of being told to have a go? Oh, it was great fun. I mean, I, you know, when I was younger, I, I did play some shots, and then I, I just, I, I suppose when I got into first-class cricket, I, I had to find a way to survive and, and thrive, and you know, make contributions as as a batsman. And I found, you know, my defence was solid, and I was I found myself more often than not in partnership with an, a batter who'd been in for a while, whether it be. So test group, whether it be Gilly or one of the top six batters. So, um, so I didn't need. I was only placed a couple of balls and over. So I didn't need to have a big expansive game. I always felt if I could just bat some time and try and tick the scoreboard over, maybe with the droppers get some singles, maybe, you know, do that. Um, that was my way of contributing to the team. If I could, if I could be in a partnership, basically, if I'm batting with a, with Gilly and I get to 10, 15 runs. He's going to be at least doubling my score, mm. so he's probably got 30. So all of a sudden, we've put nearly a 50-run partnership on, or 40-run partnership, 50-run partnership. So that's how I, I looked at it. So I break it down into, right, let's let's get to 10 here as a partnership. Let's get to 20. Let's get to 30. Um, that's how I approached it, and I, I felt that was the role for me, for me to be effective in that batting lineup and make a contribution. Uh, I think I averaged 50 balls in, in innings, so... Strike rate was pretty low, admittedly, <laughs> but while maybe in the modern game I'd be seen as quite boring, I mean, I was pretty boring back then, um, and it'll be extra boring now, <laughs> but I, f- I felt that I was doing an important role for the team. Yeah, it really belied your, your personality as a fastballer, the way you went about your batting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of time, you're going to win a bit of time back now. The pitter patter you might be able to hear through the effects, Mike, is the rain which has seen the players in your game yeah. leave the field, Jason. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm not against this rain right now. <laughs> Reduce the amount of overs we have to bowl. No. Playing the rain card immediately. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Playing the rain card. You've got the Hawaiian shirt on, dancing <laughs> on the bar in about half an hour's time. I know what you're like. It's fine. <laughs> Look, uh, it's, it's pivot slightly to your coaching career, yeah. which is... Yeah, massive part of your life now. You've been involved in, in both systems, Australia and the mm. England system. When the England job came up a couple of years ago, yep. most newspapers had you pegged as just about favourite mm. for the gig. How did that feel, having a speculation you could be coaching England? And how close did you come to making that massive decision to really have a crack and, and, and coach the national side there? Was it ever a real consideration for you? It, it, it wasn't. Uh, in a funny kind of way, I mean, it, it was nice to be thought of highly enough by the, all the media that... I was a favourite. I never felt like I was a favourite for the role, if that makes sense. Mm. I, I'd spoken to Andrew Strauss. He'd come and visited me in Leeds, and we'd had a, had a cup of tea and had a chat. And he, it was just he made it very clear he was having these conversations with a number of people that yeah. you know that he was interested in speaking to. So I, I was left under no illusion about where I where I stood. It was simply conversations, and then I, I ended up going down to London and uh, meeting with him and Tom Harrison and. Yep. 
you know, had an extended conversation. And same thing. At no point did I feel that I was locked in for the role or I was going to get the role. I, I knew they were obviously interested in chatting to me. They called me back for a second chat. So I, I knew I, I must have been under consideration. However, I, it was made very clear that I was speaking to a number of candidates. And then, then there was a bit of media speculation that was going, oh, I had cameras follow me around and uh, <laughs> media were just ringing me all the time while we were preparing for games at Yorkshire. And, and then I, I remember, I remember it distinctly, we were at Somerset preparing for a day's play and uh, I got a call from Straussy saying, look, um, Diz, thanks, uh, thanks for the conversations and all the, the professionalism you've, you've displayed in, in the media and that. But, you know, uh, you know, I've decided we are speaking exclusively with someone now about the role. So I just wanted to, he just said, I just want to thank you for having a chat. And, um, it just sounds like a dating scenario. Uh, you know, well, yeah, we're, we're exclusively, yeah, we're yeah. exclusive with someone else for the time being. But, but you know, we'd like to think, keep you on the line for the future. Thinking about it now, Jeff, yeah, you're spot on. Um, yeah, so that's a, a, a yeah, strange choice of words, I suppose. But but I, I think what, what Andrew was just trying to get across was that basically, look, I've got someone in mind and yep. I'm chatting with him now. And, and it was absolutely fine. And then I... I just thought, right, because I didn't want any more distraction with Yorkshire while we were preparing for games and during games because all the questions, all players were getting asked that. It was you right. know, the director of cricket. It was just, it, it, was, it had potential to start becoming a circus. So as soon as Straussy got off the phone, I sort of got our media manager. I said, look, let's get together. Let's uh, have a quick chat and we can just put this to bed now. And it put it to bed. As for the role, had I... Um, been offered it it would have been pretty hard to turn down admittedly you know it's not not every day you get offered an opportunity to coach an international side so mm. you know if I'm just sitting here now I, I probably would have accepted it had it been offered however on reflection looking back it was the right call one to go with Trevor Bayless so I, I fully supported that he ticked all the boxes that the ECB were after they had a big focus on white ball cricket and you know obviously his success in Australia, in India, in IPL, mm. that you know speaks volumes. So look, a- absolutely no issue. But then, in hindsight, I, I thought, well, you know, it hasn't come along. It's not not the end of the world, and it would have been. You know, I still would have had to think about. It. I still would have had to take into consideration the time away from home and the travel and and things like that. So and you know how. Could I have had an impact? But in a way, kind of, um, I'm, I'm very comfortable where I'm at, you know, with our life. And, and it, was, it was just a good experience to go through, really, to, as I said, it's not often you get spoken to for a high-profile job like that. And at least he gave you a call instead of just changing the status on Facebook. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it was nice of him to actually have a conversation. No, but uh, Straussy <laughs> was very professional. Um, Tom Harrison was very professional. Um, so, yeah, absolutely no issues with the... The, the process that the ECB went through, um, they were great to sort of uh, deal with throughout. Given you've came back into the Australian system now and now going over to Coach yep. Sussex next year, you've, you've bounced back and forth a little bit. Does that suggest yeah. that you would be open-minded to a job that's outside of those two countries? If an international job came up yeah. a, a bit further afield, a bit uh, one well, of the nations, yeah. is that something you're kind of in the market for now? Well, yeah. I mean, a couple of months ago, I'd, I'd had contact from Sri Lanka Cricket oh, right. about about that role and and it didn't go beyond that i didn't have an interview or anything like that it was just a discussion about look we're looking at our options we've got a few people that we want to um sound out to see if they would be interested in applying and so i said yeah look i'm 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 happy to have a discussion and and then it didn't really progress from there so that was fine that they obviously had someone in mind um and that's fine so look i I think you you always you always look at a role and and you know when it comes up and 
the first question you always ask yourself is, can I have an impact? And am I going to enjoy it? Is this what the team, you know, whoever you're coaching, is it going to be a good fit? And can you can you make a difference? And then obviously family considerations come into it. Um, international cricket would be a lot more problematic uh, or more difficult for me, only just with a young family and being away from home. Mm. But, you know, people think, oh, well, why are you going to England for six months a year, seven months a year? We feel we can make that work with our family. They're coming over a couple of times for stints to, to Brighton and uh, Hove. And we've, we've created a really nice life here in South Australia and the kids are happy and my wife's happy. And so when I first was chatting with Sussex, my initial reaction was, look, I'm not, not interested. And not, be, not because of the role. I thought the role was very good. And I felt, absolutely, I think I could make a difference to that county. And I feel I could help. But it was the family situation. And, and then when the discussion went, well, you know, we'd be open to a, basically a summer-only role. We discussed it as a family. We feel we can make that work. So then all of a sudden, I've gone, well, if we can make it work as a family, then right, can, can I have an impact or do I feel I can add value to the county? Once I started to speak to the county and what their ambitions for the team and the, the club moving forward, the squad, we kind of, you know, the stars were aligning in a way. And that's, uh, that's where the... The discussions progressed and got to a point where I accepted it. Is it a bit like adding another family when you, you take over a team, you're the coach, you're sort of responsible, you've got these these charges, these young guys who you've got to, you know, guide and, and mould and sort of help make them into something. It's kind of like, here, have another 20 kids. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes uh, cricketers can act like act like kids. There's no doubt about that. We we, we all have that capacity, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's a, Sussex is a quite a family club, and I'm big on that. I think it's very important. Yes, we we play a game, but it is only a game. You know, my goal for Sussex is to have a really you know strong dressing room and good relationships with everyone involved in the club, not just the players, but the the staff. The, administration the supporters the members every, everything you know i want, want everyone to be cohesive and uh, you know for me that that's quite important you know we, we had a really good environment at yorkshire in the in the time i was there and you know you learn from your past experiences as a coach you know the good things the bad things and you know i've taken bits and pieces from my time in zimbabwe you know and uh, time at yorkshire time coaching in, in and around australian cricket and you pick bits and pieces that you think work and you know add them to a new role that you're in so I'll be using my experience from my other roles that I've had I've had role in IPL as well and Aussie A and, and mm. Australia and strikers so you know all that experience molds you and how you work with people and, and hopefully I can bring some of that experience to Sussex. What would you sort of describe as your philosophy as a coach? Yeah it's kind of evolves I think Jeff your philosophy as a coach but I, I think much as anything, you, you want to help players become better, better players, better people, but never lose sight of the fact that it's just a game. And, you know, for me, that's so important. And people, you know, I know people say, oh, but it's professional sport, and, you, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you know, it's ruthless, all that. I get all that, but it's still just a game. <laughs> you know, yes, I know there's money in the game. Yes, I know it's, it's blokes' careers. And, and this is where it gets tricky and... You know, it is hard because, you know, some of the worst things about the job is players are being released, players are getting dropped, giving that feedback to players. They're the parts of the job you don't really like. Everyone's got parts of their job they don't particularly like, but but you have to be very respectful and 
but as long as you can look yourself in the mirror and say you're doing it for the right reasons and, and stuff, you tend to be okay. Is that sort of more empathetic, considered side you're talking about there? Is that consistent with what you were like when you when you were a player? Or has that, has that evolved a fair that, bit that, since you've been off the field? Yeah, I think so. I think I've always tried to put myself in other people's shoes as much as I can, just to get a feel for what they're thinking, what they're going through. I think that's that's quite important. Empathy is, is, is an important thing when you're a coach or a manager. Or, and, and you certainly need it. In, in, at county level, you need to understand, you know, because it's how do I describe it? it? It can be tough for a professional sportsman, you know. If you're, you think last year of your contract, you know that there's some insecurities there. Being a professional sportsman, you know, you could be one injury away from losing a contract. I, I get all that. I understand that. Yeah, it was interesting talking to Jay Root earlier in the year. He talked about empathy being a big part of his dressing mm. room. The dressing room he wanted to build, the culture he wanted to, to foster over a period of time. Does that sort of? Do you think you've had an influence on him to an extent? The time um, you've worked with him and just seeing the, the world in a, in a broader sense rather than strictly about the sort of hostilities, to, to use that yeah, sort of acne I, term on the field? I, I think Joe's d- done that himself. I, I, he's quite... Uh, he he doesn't just think of himself. I saw that from when I first met Joe and you know he was just a good teammate in the dressing room. He'd be very inclusive and no, I think that's just his character as much as anything. If I've had some something to do with that, I mean, that, that's it's great. But but I think it's, it's essentially come from Joe. And, and he's absolutely spot on. You know, as as leader, he, he needs to be able to put himself in you know in his teammates' shoes and, and listen to understand, I suppose. You played in a super aggressive Australian team, you know, obviously very skillful era, but it was also marked by being really hard on the field, you know, a lot of quite angry characters at times, and then you always seem to be a bit different in, in your own way. Did you feel at ease in that environment or did, were you comfortable with the way things went on or did you feel like it was a little bit different to how you uh, would go about it I, I didn't have a problem I don't have a problem with players going hard in the field I don't I don't have a problem with players um, saying a few words out there because everyone's different and different doesn't mean bad hmm. different isn't negative everyone you know there's so many ways to hit a ball for four there's so many <laughs> ways to bowl a ball there's so many ways to act out there you know, some guys are more vocal than others. Some guys are angrier than others. As I said, I've always just seen it as a game and a game to enjoy. Yeah, I, I got fired up on the field from time to time as well. Um, but everyone does it their own way. You know, I know there was sometimes there was a bit of criticism in, in, in the era that I played about how the Australian team went. I mean, we played hard, but we played fair. And, and all those guys I, I was fortunate enough to play cricket with. And I, I watched how they prepared and, you know, I helped them prepare. They helped me prepare. We left no stone unturned and mm. we just wanted to win. Well, I don't believe that their lines were crossed. Other people will argue. But you've got to remember as well, when you talk about, you know, we talk about sledging and mental disintegration, chirping, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't hear a lot of it. Because I'd, I'd bowl a ball, then I'd be walking back to my mark. So, <laughs> you know, the... The hammock, the keeper and the slips, maybe they were saying a few things, but I didn't hear it because I'm walking back to a mark. I, I always felt as a bowler, me being the most intimidating, a bit like Kirtley Ambrose, I just have a little stare and then by the time the batsman sort of looks up, you're halfway back to your mark and I wanted to give the impression to the batter, oh, geez, he wants a piece of me. He's <laughs> racing back to his mark. To, you know, I, I was slow back to my mark as a general rule, but, but that, might, that was my attitude yeah. was... I'm going to get back to my mark. I'm having a go. I'm coming at you again. And uh, bowl the ball, give him a little stare or a little word, and then get back to my mark. 
as quick as I can as I'm coming after you, son. So that that was kind of my approach. <laughs> when you were, when you were really on top of a player, you know, like I don't know Sherwin Campbell in that 2000 series yeah. or whatever, and, and they've they've really got no clue what's going on. Did you ever feel a bit sorry for a batsman that you were working over? I've never ever felt sorry for a batsman. Yet. <laughs> never. Mate, look, you have to work hard for your wickets. And, you know, that's what I say. Like, fast bowling's hard work, as we touched on earlier. I mean, you know, some of the the greats of the game, their their strike rate is 50. That's still 50 balls you have to bowl to take a wicket. That's a lot of work. And then, you know, these guys with 500 wickets and the the strike rate of 50. Wow, that's a lot of bowling, eh? Mm. I mean, I think Dale Staines got just about the best strike rate in the history of the game. That he still takes him seven overs to get a wicket. You know that? I mean, that's incredible. Incredible. Jason, we said when we were going to get you on, we want to talk about a couple of the broad, broader issues. Yeah, I of mean, course. Your, your, um, your, your, your dietary choices are well documented. <laughs> very well documented. Your plant-based athlete yep, yep, status. Yep. And, and uh, look, I don't think a lot of people are across the reason why you made those decisions. And mm. there's a lot of chat about other players that have followed suit. To start to frame the conversation, why did you make the decision to remove meat from your life? Yeah, well, I remember when I first heard that Peter Siddle had gone a vegan. He's he's been vegan for six, seven years yeah. now. I would have thought, and I I, I thought, oh, what's that? And I didn't give it a second thought, and uh, <laughs> so uh, that sounds a bit bit hippie and a bit crazy. And uh, I thought well, the thought of not having meat was not even, mate. I was the biggest. I was a meat eater. I was. A, for the ages, I could eat steak, I could do everything, like biltong, all that, I, I, with the best of them. But yeah, I mean, my dad unfortunately passed away just over four years ago. Mum and dad came to visit us in Leeds, and this was 23rd, July 2013, and mm-hmm. dad was helping us move house. So we hired a little van, you know, those little trucks, because we, we weren't moving far. We bought our house, and so we're moving out of our rental accommodation, which was just around the corner. And uh, so we hired this van and we made a few trips. So it was the last trip. And, um, and unfortunately, Dad had, uh, had a heart attack, collapsed, and, and subsequently died. And uh, that had a pretty big effect on me. And so I started to just look at, you know, because my dad, to be, you know, bless him, he wasn't the specimen, specimen he used to be, uh, so <laughs> to speak. He, he was carrying a bit of weight. He, uh, you know, I'd found out, after he died, you know, he'd had some issues, you know, he, he financially, he because he'd been out of work for a while, so he kept things pretty close to his chest, which in turn created a lot of stress in his life. So these combinating factors and so he was he was eating, eating badly and, and things like that and not putting the best food into his, best food or drink into his body. So... After that, after that, I just started to look at things. I didn't go vegetarian or vegan or anything like that. It was just an, an awareness of, you know, <coughs> got to look after myself a little bit better. I've got a young family and, you know, I basically crapped myself and so started to look at things. And then it was probably a year later, just over a year later, my wife and I were just stumbled upon a documentary called Earthlings and uh, it was done in mid-2000s. The premise of it is that, you know, we're all on this planet you know we're all earthlings and it's it's a it's a vegan documentary essentially and something just clicked it just made complete sense and i'm look i'm not a religious man i'm not a not a believer in many things to be honest i'm actually quite a non-believer um but this just something in me just triggered and it just made complete sense from that moment on i 
I stopped eating meat. I just said, I just looked at my wife. I said, I, I did not know this. This is just the light bulb moment. And I did not know what goes on with the animal welfare, the environmental impact. I, I had no idea. And the health benefits of whole food plant-based diet as well. So I, I had no idea. So subsequent to that, after I, I literally went overnight. Uh, that was it. And then I started to watch more documentaries and read papers and just do my own research. Yeah. And it just made complete sense to me. And I've been vegan ever since. And um, I've been vocal. I felt I was a little bit stitched up when I was still coaching at Yorkshire and a journalist was asking me some questions. But it's what I believe. It's each to their own. But look, I'm, I'm, I'm very strong in my beliefs. It's part of a slightly broader sea change in cricket. You've got, you know, Peter Siddle as it started with, but Adam Zampa's quite vocal about this stuff. Nick Maddinson. Kane Richardson. Kane Richardson, yeah. And Ryan Carters. Uh, yeah, but more and more. I think when you understand and you, you actually do your research, it's just, it becomes quite a simple decision, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I'll, look, I, I've, I've been through the phase, uh, which I think most people do. You, you want to just, all the knowledge that you've, that you learn, you pick up, you just want to share it with everyone. They so, say such injustice in this world, and we all know there's a lot of injustice in this world, but you know, I'm at a point now where I'm just I'm on my journey, um, and I just live my life the way I want to. I, I, I am turning into a genuine hippie. My wife keeps saying to me, <laughs> You are turning a hippie. I've got the, the happy pants, and the and I shop at, I, I buy all my clothes, buy, buy the majority of my clothes at op shops, and you know, I keep researching off-the-grid lifestyles, and <laughs> which I, it, it will happen at some point. I'll, battery packs. Uh, I, sorry. Get the battery packs going. Yeah, I, 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 Jeff, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm quite passionate about it. I, I actually think that will be, I, I think particularly once the kids grow up and get get a bit older, I, I can definitely see myself uh, switching off from the grid and uh, and living that you know self-sufficient lifestyle. You know, growing my own food and producing my own power and all that sort of stuff I, I can definitely see it I'm, as I told you I'm turning into a bloody hippie R- running, running the cricket filter through that that cricket is that Jeff, Jeff mentioned yeah, before yeah, yeah. Uh, whenever people talk about not eating meat invariably and when they couple it with sport they go well how could they possibly have the energy to do that how, without the protein and the meat how could it, that, that's a common argument you hear how, how, how do herbivores get their protein they eat plants and so all I, all I see, it's very simple, just missing out the middleman. I just go straight to the source and have the plants. I don't have to go through an animal, you know, and, and what that animal has to go through mm. to then be on your plate. I mean, let's face it, there's no such thing as humane slaughter, is there? It's, um, it's a strange coupling of words to me. It makes zero sense. But yeah, like people always talk about that, and and that's the first question you get. You ask a vegan, yeah. what's the first question you get asked? They go, how do you get your protein? So I always fire back, tell me what protein means, and no one's been able to actually give me the definition of what protein is. So people just hear, <laughs> oh, you've got to have protein, protein, protein. The research shows that we we have three, four times the amount of protein that we actually need. It's actually wrong from a scientific point of view. It's wrong. I mean, plants have protein. I mean, there's more. There's more protein in chickpeas than chicken. But do you think it did influence the way that Peter Siddle has been thought about? I mean, it, it maybe, has, maybe, yeah. maybe social media is not the greatest filter. It's a bit of a, you know, yeah. a bit of an echo chamber. But no, no, you definitely. jump on there and you talk about Peter Siddle, and people do, you know, because they, people, they, 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 it's a slur almost. The, the, yeah, and they think, you know, that people say, oh, but Peter Siddle slowed down, and uh, yeah. 
you know, he's not as fast as he used to be and all that. So, obviously, it's because he doesn't eat meat. I mean, you ask Pete, he can run faster for longer. He can lift more in the gym. He can squat more. So, it's not a strength or conditioning issue. You know, just wonder, like, in defence of Pete, he has had a few injuries over mm. the years. And you do, as you, as you get older, as a bowler, you do slow down. You know, I certainly, when I was over 30, I couldn't bowl, have what I used to bowl when I was in my mid-20s. It's just that natural evolution, I suppose. Mm. It seems, you look at cricket culture more broadly, there's a lot of macho bullshit, there's a lot of posturing and a lot Correct. of testosterone and all the rest. Correct. You're kind of a different cat. You're coming at things from a slightly different angle. Do you ever feel like the way you do things isn't isn't right or, or isn't welcome or shouldn't be there? Or I, I, love, th- I love that you called me a different cat. That's <laughs> great. Um... Uh, it's. I just say you, you be true to yourself, and you know I, I know I know people perceive me as being different. I don't see myself as different. Uh, I do have alternative views to a lot of people. I don't like seeing animals slaughtered for our benefit. I don't like the dairy industry and what they do to to innocent animals. I <laughs> is that wrong? <laughs> That's how I, I just. Oh, he's weird because he doesn't want to slaughter animals. You know, I find that a little bit strange. Yeah, he's a bit strange because he cares about the environment, you know, cares about the oceans. For me, I don't see that as being weird. I see that as being a human being. Had your, had your yeah, well, yeah, had your, your views or your epiphany four years ago, but the way you've changed your life, had that happened 15 years earlier and you're a member of the Australian Change Room, would have yeah. it been a welcoming environment for you then? Or is this something that's only palatable now that... Other players and others um, have, have sort of led the, led the way. I I would have been fine. I'm a pretty strong personality, so I'd like to think I am. I I don't think I would have had a problem. Look, I've made a mind down where I live. He's a he's a local butcher. Not going to not be his mate. Yes, sure. we've got very different views on <laughs> <laughs> what the the world is. As different as one but, could have. I but but I, I but I think the the reality is we live in a non-vegan world. So you you just have to do what you can and. If someone asks me about my views, I'm pretty strong on my views. I'm not afraid to give that view, but I'm not going to say to someone, I don't like you or I, because you have a different view to me. We'll have a discussion and a debate, and I don't have to agree with it necessarily. You know, and they don't have to agree with me, but I feel I'm right. <laughs> and, and I can be a bit of a stubborn bloke from time to time. Just ask my wife, but it's kind of what makes me tick as well if that makes sense. I've just noticed that, um, that that some of your teammates are running out to do covers, which must be a bit old fat. You wouldn't have, wouldn't have been a very long time since you were asked to run out and do the covers, Jason. But, yeah. we'll, but the, you know, and I'm so glad I'm having a chat with you guys say, on so this I think, podcast. So, so I, think, I think that so it means we can keep talking to you and keep uh, taking advantage of your generous time you're giving us today. Oh, by the way, we are playing the MCC. I didn't realise. Oh, really? So, yeah, Chairman's 11 versus the MCC because yeah, I thought right. John Stevenson there just before. So, yeah. Did you represent the MCC in one of your iterations over in England? I've, I've, never, I've never played for the MCC. Uh, I, I'm a member, I'm sort of an honorary life member of the mm. MCC, so I'd love to uh, one day go on one of those uh, junkets, or, I mean tours. That's what they um, are, aren't they? <laughs> pretty much. Um, no, they're great, and they, they raise a lot of money for, sure. for charities and stuff, which is uh, I think is, is fantastic. In light of the extra time we've got, we were talking, Jeff and I, before we came <coughs> on, whether we were going to talk about your Indigenous heritage, and I think we, we should. What I'm interested in is, is you're kind of given this title as one of only a couple of Indigenous mm. players who's played Test cricket for Australia, and it seems like quite a heavy burden in a way to put on <laughs> someone, that, because, because you don't get to share it around. Yeah, yeah. it's a... <sighs> 
Yeah, it's an interesting one because as a family, like I've known since I was a young kid that our family is of Indigenous, you know, Aboriginal heritage. So it's been nothing new and it's something that we're obviously incredibly proud of. So it was a bit of a, you know, all my mates growing up, they, they all knew, oh, yeah, you know, we're, we're of Indigenous heritage. So there was no issue going through school, all this sort of stuff. And it just so happened that there were um, journalists around the year 2000 it put this story on, oh, Jason Gillespie's uh, Aboriginal and all this. Oh, where's this come from? And all this sort of stuff. And it, it was a massive surprise to me that... Is, uh, and maybe I, I underestimated, like... I just thought nothing of it. It's, oh, yeah, Aboriginal. Yeah, well, you went on to captain the Atsic 11, didn't you, that, that game? Well, I was, I was meant to, but I hurt myself. So oh, right. I was sort of a non-playing captain, uh, which was great. <laughs> Mike uh, really. Yeah, but... Well, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'd, I'd injured myself, and it was before a tour, so I, I had to be careful. But, but yeah, it was it, it was a weird old time. And then your question, Jeff, there's no, I've never felt there's any expectations or anything like that. I, you know, I've got Aboriginal heritage of, you know, my mum's side. We've got Greek heritage, and you know, we're obviously proud of that as well. You know, and I think there was a little bit of criticism in some quarters that you know I was seen to not really be embracing my culture, which couldn't be further from the truth. My late father, I mean, he worked; he was CEO of ALRM, Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement, for a long time. My brother still works there. You know, it's not as if our family have just you know swept it under the carpet or anything like that. Gee whiz, you only have to, you know, my, my, my one of my cousins, he, he works in Indigenous services and whatnot. So our family's got a strong connection to Aboriginal heritage and, and the like. So Pretty significant time coming up for, for Indigenous uh, affairs as it relates to Australian cricket with the Tour of England next year mm. um, to mark the 150 years since the initial yep. tour. And Ashley Gardner, Jeff and I have had the great pleasure of watching her play for Australia in recent times and for the Sydney Sixers in, in the Women's Big Bash League. She's a superstar of the game and, and will will have a, a massive profile very soon. Have you had much to do with Ash? I know you presented her a cap when I, she first played. I haven't had much to do with Ash. Um, presented with a cap, yeah, which was a, a proud moment. Yeah, she, she's going to be a superstar. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. She bowls really nice off spin. She gives them a whack and she's a jet in the field. Mm. All the attributes of uh, of being a very fine cricketer for Australia for many years to come and just absolutely delighted for her. Um, she's she's worked her butt off to achieve that. So, you know, full credit to her. Um, I, I think what, what I'm really proud of Cricket Australia, um, they've put a real emphasis on the Indigenous 11, men and women. They're you know that that tour that you mentioned that's, that's coming up. I, I can see they're they're putting more focus into Indigenous cricket, and we're seeing a lot more lads pop up into first class cricket. I'd like to see some more. That'd be fantastic. But also, I think our sport has got to be realistic as well. AFL is what Aboriginal children love the most. But we've got to, as a sport, try and get them to think. Well, there are alternatives to footy. Aboriginal children. I mean, they're just unbelievably gifted kids in you know whatever sport they pick up you know we, we just probably selfishly as a sport we want to we want to get the best young kids coming and playing our sport and showing them that it's a it's a great sport to play but our sport's very different to footy so you know cricket australia have to be understanding of that and and, and i think they are but you know they're, they're really making some conscious efforts to to give aboriginal cricket a real profile and i'm i'm, I'm very proud of cricket australia for going down that path Jason, you've been incredibly generous again with your time today. One of no, the most no considerate and interesting and engaging uh, members of the cricket community. We're, we're so thrilled to have had you on the final word. Thanks for your time. Absolute pleasure, lads. Thank you very much.
This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, I had a great time out there talking to Jason. What, what a great man. It, you never know when you're starting an interview how it's going to go. You know, it's a little bit like a first date or something. You're sitting down with someone, <laughs> maybe it's been set up, there's been quite a few phone calls back and forth and some texts and so on to make sure that you're in the right place at the right time. Are you wearing the right thing? Is everyone comfortable? But then sometimes it just flows. Yeah, to go behind the curtain, we took about two weeks trying to tee that interview up. I'm so glad that we, we got there and had that long discussion with him. But let's uh, look towards Perth. There's a bit of a gap between Adelaide and Perth, which should serve both sides well, Australia in terms of just taking stock and realising they have, they are one rubber away from regaining the urn. As for England, they, they've got a two-day tour game against a bunch of kids uh, in Perth this weekend, which you can't draw an awful lot from. By the way, isn't that a joke? These tour games that England have been given, uh, both before the first Test match and this, these CA11s. I'm all for the, the CA11 and the development capacity it gives to players. But when England played the, the West Australian tour game in 1998-99, Matthew Nicholson was breaking arms, took seven wickets. He petrified the English. It was a, the perfect preparation for a Test match. This is a, you know, a glorified club game. If that, uh, the, the kind of level of players that they're being sent. You know, there's a handful of decent, experienced players in those teams, but it just makes a bit of a farce of preparation. If if you're asking the, the host board to give you preparation for a game, that's not what you're getting. And to be fair, it is reciprocated when Australia tours England. They usually get teed up to play the worst county sides at the bottom of the second division on absolute roads, uh, and those sides rest all their good bowlers. And they always win the toss and bowl first as well to let the Australians have a bat first too. Yeah, but, exactly. but still, they are first-class fixtures, and Darren Lehman, as the Australian coach, ins- actually insists on that. He always wants his tour games to be first-class status, have something riding on it. This is anything but... And that's no reflection on the young players they've drawn from from this youth squad. I mean, they're all going to go on and have presumably great careers, at, or you know, serviceable careers as first-class players themselves. But I, I'm thinking more from an English perspective. In order to prepare for a test match, um, playing against what is a glorified youth squad with a couple of guys. I think it was four of the 11 have played um, cricket for their states at this stage. It just feels like there's something amiss there. And, and I wonder whether there will be um, retaliation in a couple of years' time when Australia does go to England. Playing the, uh, the Loughborough under-17s development squad or whatever. But still, we we are heading to Perth next week after that to a game. Mitchell Marsh, we mentioned in the intro, he's back into the 13 at the expense of Chad Sayers. Um, I think this was always on the cards. Mark Waugh said last week that they really do want to have a a bowling option at number six, and Mitchell Marsh is the obvious contender. I think Stoinis was in the mixer as well, but but Mitchell Marsh is still kind of shoulders, head and shoulders above the next contender. Yeah, poor old Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. (laughs) Dr. Sayers, Dr. Sayers. Oh, Dr. Sayers always Dr. misses Sayers, out. Dr. Sayers. Always misses out. Um, but in comes Mitch Marsh. You wouldn't necessarily want Chadwick um, bowling at Perth, would you? Um, he'll play. He, won't, he wouldn't be in the squad if he wasn't going to be in the team. It feels so that way, doesn't it? Let's call it now. Let's call it early. Hands let's declare it. Yeah, and, and, and think about a week ago. Let's go back, uh, back in time, jump in our time machine, as we often do on the final word. Two weeks ago, before the first test in Brisbane, I would have said that it's Smith and and Warner as your top dog. And on the next line of betting, if you like, it's to mix my metaphors and analogies horrifically. We've, we've, we've got top, top dog, <laughs> top dogs, dog and dogs and horses all dogs together. Dogs with a gambling problem <laughs> is what we're on here. So <laughs> that'll do. Yeah. Um, and and but the next line of that would have been, I think, even Kawaja and Hansium. I think they would have been the two guys that would have been considered equally as important as each other after the performances they turned out last summer. Hanscom was prolific after coming into the Australian eleven, but now in the space of those couple of weeks, Sean Marsh is undroppable, and Peter Hanscom is 
well, gee, you don't need to be a, a professional cricketer or an expert in batting techniques to see that he's low on confidence and there's something amiss and the English bowlers are having a field day. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with all of that. Like, I think it's a bit of a nonsense how quickly um, public mood changes and how quickly selectorial mood changes. You know, someone has one good innings and suddenly they're undroppable. Someone has a couple of bad ones and suddenly they never knew how to play to begin with. Yeah, Peter Hanscom has looked bad. He's had three innings in the series. He hasn't looked good. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's not a good enough player to work out a, a method between here and Perth that wouldn't help him. I'd, I think he'll be left out of the side because on balance they want the seamer to support the fast bowlers on what can be a very flat deck at the Wacker. But I don't think he necessarily would be dropped if they were going into a game with a better bowling pitch. And I don't think he, he's necessarily going to be out of the team for a long time. It might just be a horses for courses change for that track. Oh, I certainly agree with you. I don't think that he should be like dropped and cast aside and sacked in, in the old-fashioned way. I think he's dead right. He's, he's out of form. But I guess my point's more that the pecking order has changed in yeah. the space of those couple of test matches. And Sean Marsh, would have been, even before he batted in that first test match at Brisbane, we saw Glenn Maxwell run up to 178. And the discussion immediately transferred to when will they punt Marsh for, for Maxwell? How long will it take? Now, that's, that's now... You know, a long way from the discussion as, as shown by what happened in Adelaide this week and well-documented sort of innings of, of marshes that, that, that guarantees he'll play in all five test matches in this series. But Hanscom has dropped down a cog. And look, Simon Kadic made some interesting comments to me about this a couple of days ago. He went through a rough trot in 2005 during the Ashes series where he said there was a similar balance problem he had at the crease, which he's identifying, I should add, not me. It's, it's uh, this idea that he can't shift his weight forward quickly enough to, to approach the ball. He sees some of that in what he was doing in 05 to, to a lesser extent. And he found it too hard to make that adjustment in the middle of uh, an Ashes series. It's almost like at that point, making a technical change, you have to wait until the off-season when you can spend you know countless hours in the nets to sort it out with your batting coach. It's not the right time between test matches for that. And his prognosis is that it could be a long way back for Hanscom in this series if he does play, because it's going to be so hard for him to sort it out. It doesn't seem to necessarily stack up to say that a player who's made it to test cricket with this technique and who's played pretty well over the year that he's been in the side you know didn't absolutely dominate in Asian conditions but he played some very important innings there some Mm. very patient and bloody minded kind of innings uh, in India and Bangladesh that might be a place where it's much more feasible to play off the back foot a lot like he does because you're playing spin off the wicket and you're waiting for it to come onto you and and maybe when you're facing a bowling attack like England's that that can pitch it full and that can get you in trouble on the crease, you know, maybe his technical problem is a problem. Maybe it's a bit like Gary Balance where he comes in, has a bit of a honeymoon uh, period when people haven't figured him out yet, and then once they have figured him out, then they're able to beat his technique. But I still think it's very early to make that call based on the fact that he's had two bad test matches, one of which he didn't get to bat twice. In a way, it's credit to England. James Anderson was asked about Peter Hanscom a couple of nights ago at a media conference, and he uh, was happy to say they had a plan that was working. Now, not necessarily, there's no reason to work all summer, but so far... Um, they've found a way to, to sort of penetrate the Hanscom mainframe and, it, and it's worked quite nicely. So that's the, that is the change for Perth uh, that, that, that Marsh comes in, not necessarily at the expense of Hanscom, but the reason why Marsh is into the 13 and there is an option is because making runs for laughs at the Wacker in the last two day shield games, let's disregard the pink ball one they played there at the start of the season, but the two games that followed, there was 2,800 runs made, um, SA chased down 325, four wickets down on the fourth day. I mean, you, you've got huge amounts of numbers. Mitchell Marsh made a 141 and a 91 in the other game, if memory serves me correctly. So he's in decent nick over there as well. It seems to make sense that um, they want a separate bowling option in case it happens to be 500 versus 500. Entirely possible if it's, if it's a flat, um, lifeless track. And in that scenario, 
Romeo. We've already seen this week how Smith wanted to protect his bowlers and not enforce the follow-on. Um, one good way to break your bowlers is to make them bowl for maybe up to 130, 140 overs on a very hot day, which it may very well be in Perth. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw that when Australia played New Zealand there a couple of years ago yes. and it was 500 v 600, you know, declarations abounding. Ross Taylor nearly got a triple ton. So End of Mitchell Johnson's career. Yeah, Mitchell Johnson walked out of test cricket at that point saying, <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. And absolutely fair. And he said, is it just mid-spell? Mid-test match, Mid-over. He, he was standing at the top of his mark and he goes, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Fair this enough. isn't fun. It was fair enough. It was a horrible track. Um, nonetheless, yeah, you've got... A batsman like Mitch Marsh, who's not very reliable, but I suppose they could take the view that on a really flat track, that's probably where he's most likely to make runs. And then on a really flat track, that's where you need a, a support seamer who can come in and bowl you 20 overs if required. Yeah, the one thing counting against Marsh is he has a poor record against top flight bowling. And, and I think we've seen uh, in Adelaide that, that James Anderson is still at the peak of his powers. And and Wokes too. I think Wokes, the conversation about Wokes has been diminished somewhat due to how well Anderson bowled. But he was top shelf in the second dig especially and also won the error of David Warner. Kwaja as well in the first innings with that hoik out from the, you know, the, sort of the old three-card trick. The bouncer got Kawaja there. Admittedly, he was let down by his fieldsman, Mark Stoneman, at the time. But still, like they're two decent bowlers in pretty good nick. So we'll see how they go in Perth because they'll both certainly be retained. I also wonder about England, whether there'll be a temptation to bring in an extra spinner if it is particularly um, trying in Perth. I mean, disregard all the things you've ever heard about the Wacker track for those who've you know perhaps not watched much cricket in Perth. These days, it is flat, it is slow, it is not particularly enjoyable to watch. It's attritional. And in those circumstances, with Moeen Ali finding it hard to get any penetration as a spinner, they have Mason Crane in the squad who, who would be a debutante. Big ask as a leg spinner against Australia in an Ashes series. But also, just a bit of a specky. Jack Leach, the left-arm orthodox spinner from Somerset, who was so good a couple of years ago, he is in that England Lions squad, or England A, or whatever they're calling it, who are out here at the moment. I, I mean, it's, it's unlikely he'd debut, but if they want someone who can exercise a bit of control and still move the ball away from the right, hander he might be you know a bit left field but they could bring him in tough ask spin bowler have your debut in the ashes yeah at the whacker it's with be... the series on the line yeah I'm not, I'm not saying it'll be easy but if they do want to try and find a way to shut down scoring from one end um, i'm not sure whether mowing alley's able to do that right now whether that's to do with the cut on his finger lacking purchase confidence you know, he's taken two wickets at 98 in the series. That, you know, it's all you kind of need to know about the first two test matches. But watching him bowl, he's leaking runs as well. And, you know, if they need a criminal barrister at some point to get to the bottom of a case, Mason Crane <laughs> can definitely do the job. All right, gentlemen, we have a problem with this jury. And I'm going to land one on a length and turn it away from the right-hander. Yeah, and, and looking at his, um, his, his he, he's on this tour as much for anything about what he did in Australia in grade cricket. He ran, he ran wild in grade cricket and ended up in the New South Wales side last year, remarkably. That, that's a major driver behind why Mason Crane's here. But we were joking in the press box the other day that Michael Atherton has a better record with the ball um, than Mason Crane in his first-class career where he didn't bow an awful lot. Um, so that, that might give you a bit of a feel for, for the, how green he might be if he has to debut um, against Australia in an Ashes test as you mentioned before Jeff so that's all ahead of us in Perth when we cross the Nullarbor next week make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and it will be popping up on the other platforms pretty soon we're just still working out the technical side of that and also just keep an eye on the Guardian website where we'll be popping up over the course of the Ashes series until next week this is the final word the Guardian's Ashes podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon Sorry if I ran out to empty, wrote this so you know what I meant. Yeah. I had to go.